Please, would you open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 to 21. And the theme for my message is the practical implications of Easter. And by that I really mean the practical implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, righteous and holy God, as we turn now to your word, we pray again for the enablement of the Holy Spirit, for the help of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to open the scriptures to our minds as you did to the disciples after the resurrection, where Luke tells us you opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we pray that you would do the same for us, that like the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, our hearts will burn within us when you open the truth to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So when we come to the Bible and we read, the Bible was never given so that we can just have more head knowledge. The Bible is always given that we may have knowledge for Christian living, for honoring God through our lives. That's what Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, the second half of that verse tells us, that these things are given, the things that God has revealed to us are given to us and our children, that we should obey it. So when I, when I have this theme, the practical implications of Easter, it's not merely a good idea, that's just basic Christianity. It's a basic way of living the Christian life, is to make it practical. So let us hear then the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of rec reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. 
he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we speak of the practical implications of Easter, number one, I'm going to talk about your motives, verse 11 to 15. What are the practical implications of Easter on our motives? Anyone who comes and does good deeds to you or for you, you regard those good deeds as evil, as repulsive, as sickening, if you find out that the person really did it because he wants to abuse you and use you to get something he really wants, whether it's money, whether it's popularity or whatever else. So what the gospel comes and does for us and in us as Christians, it changes our motives. Let's take Paul as an example here. Paul says in verse 11, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because Paul knows, verse 10, that there's a judgment coming. And some think, think that verse 10 refers only to the judgment of believers. I'm not certain about that, but I will say something or show some practical implications later on. So Paul, because he knew judgment day is coming, because he knew God is a holy God, God is a righteous judge and a terrifying judge, and hell is very serious. Therefore, he says, knowing this fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I preach from the heart. I preach with all my heart to persuade other people. If you read Romans 2 or John 5, 28 and 29, all people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of God. Uh, Jude 23 says that we, because we, we, we want to save others from the fire, but we do it with fear and trembling. Uh, like a friend of mine said, I think Paul would agree with that, we need evangelists who have seen the other world. So yes, we believe that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin and convicts them of righteousness and judgment. But he does it through us. Like the Apostle Paul in, in Acts 18 verse 4, 28, 23, it says he spoke with much persuasion. He did everything in his power to persuade people and through the power of the Spirit. And that's why when we speak to people about Jesus Christ, we should persuade them. Uh, we should come with all the powers of persuasion and trust in the Holy Spirit to persuade them. Persuade them. It's like you, you're taking them by the shoulders and you shake them awake. You shake them alive. Uh, it's like coming to someone whose house is on fire. You don't stroll in and say, hey, uh, I know you're busy sleeping. Sorry for waking you. I, I just wanted to say your house is on fire. No! No, you shake him up, you wake him up, and you tell him your house is burning, your house is burning. Like Paul does in verse 20, we implore you, we beg you, we plead with you on behalf of Christ. Like in Acts 13, 34, with much persuasion, Paul and Barnabas, urging the people, continuing the grace of God. So we should preach with an urgency, you must repent today, as in chapter 6, verse 2. We cannot, and I as a preacher, I cannot come to you and I'm dead and I'm cold and I'm rock hard and I'm boring and people sleep under the preaching. Uh, at a conference, Steve Lawson said, if you want to bore people, bore them with Shakespeare. Don't bore them with a Bible. We should weep. 
for people who are lost. And I know I certainly do not do this as I ought. I wonder how many of, we do, of us do. Paul, in, in chapter 2, verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. The farmer goes sowing the seed with tears. He will reap with shouts of joy. He will come in. Those who sow with tears will, will reap with that, those shouts of joy. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 speaks of that. Uh, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, the lost city. The apostle Paul served the Lord with tears. He wept and pleaded with the people to be reconciled to God in, in Acts chapter 20, 19, verse 19 and 31. Paul even spoke of his enemies with tears in Philippians 3, 18. Reminds me of a story of the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, in the 1800s. He lived in England, and he had sent two women named Kate and Mary Jackson to a certain part uh, on the outskirts of London. And they had gone to help the people, but eventually they wanted to give up. They wrote him and, and said to him, please send us to another station, send us to another place. These people are so hard, they will not hear. We've tried everything and we've accomplished nothing. And then he just wrote back these words, try tears. And then those two ladies really started pleading with the Lord for these lost people and praying for them. And eventually a revival came. Try tears. We must give all we have by the enablement and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give all we have to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, where he speaks of bringing the believers to maturity and he works with all God's energy that he powerfully works within Paul. Like George Whitfield said, I'd rather wear out than rust out. So shouldn't we preach with conviction and believe what we say? Verse 11, we persuade others. We persuade others. Chapter 4, verse 13, I believe, therefore I spoke. Also reminds me of the story of George Whitfield. George Whitfield told this story in a sermon of the Archbishop of Canterbury in England who spoke to an actor called Mr. Butterworth. And he said to the actor, why is it that you, you actors... You speak of things that, that are imaginary, but people believe you, we, and you can draw tears from a crowd and really move people. But we preachers, we speak of real things, but people don't take us seriously. And the actor responded, Mr. Butterworth responded, and he said, Archbishop, the reason is this, that we actors speak of things imaginary as if they were real. But you preachers speak of things that are real as if they're just imaginary. So what Paul does here to draw the illustration, to draw the line to our text, Paul, he comes and he preaches with conviction. Knowing these things are real, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And the persuasion might not only be for unbelievers, persuading them of the truth of the gospel, it may also be that Paul is trying to persuade the Corinthians, trying to persuade Christians, <clears throat> saying that my motives are pure. Even though these false teachers came into the Corinthian church and they spread lies about Paul. And now he's saying, I'm trying to persuade you with everything in me that my motives are pure. God knows my heart, 11b. But what we are is known to God. I hope it's known also to your conscience. God knows my heart. God, God knows I'm pure. 
God knows my motives. Chapter 10, verse 10. They say Paul's letters are weighty and he's um, and strong, he's, but his bodily presence is weak, his speech of no account. So they, they're saying these things against Paul, but Paul says, the Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows I am not preaching to win people's favor and applause. I'm not preaching to get your money. I want people to be saved. I want people to know Jesus Christ. And you know it's true, verse 11. You know it. Your conscience tells you that. You remember when we were among you. You remember when I was in Corinth. I didn't steal money. I came with pure motives. You saw my life. You heard my preaching. And even Paul's own, own conscience testifies to that. He says in Acts 23, verse 1 and 24, 16, and 2 Corinthians 1 even, verse 12, he says that my conscience is clear. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. We've behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. You know it, I know it, God knows it. And my life testified, verse 12, we are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that we, you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. So actually in verse 12 he's saying, I don't need letters of recommendation like these false teachers. Chapter 3 verse 1 he said it. Chapter 10 verse 18 he said, these false teachers, they get letters of recommendation. Oh, this is a good preacher. You can trust him. Meantime, why did, why did he want a letter of re recommendation in the first place? He wanted it because he's not trustworthy. He needs backup. Where Paul says, our lives are the letter of recommendation. Your lives are the letter of recommendation, he says in chapter 3. Just the way we preach the gospel and brought it and God's laws written on your hearts and so on ours. We don't need letters of recommendation. And he says on judgment day, you'll boast about us, verse 12. And on, on, he even said it in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, you'll boast of us and we'll boast of you. You'll boast of us and say, Paul, the apostle Paul led us to Jesus. Yes, Paul was poor. Yes, Paul wasn't impressive outwardly. Yes, Paul wasn't a rich man. But we knew he loved us and he had pure motives, like he says in verse 11. And these false teachers obviously said, Paul's mad. Paul's crazy. Paul's lost his senses. And Paul said, well, if that's true, then, then so be it to the glory of God, verse 13. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Just like they said of Jesus, he's mad. His own family said it. And the Jews said Jesus has a demon and he's a Samaritan. And, and even a Roman governor said to Paul, you're mad. You're mad, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. And Paul says, well, then I am mad. Then consider me mad. I will suffer anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, even if people think I'm crazy. And, and to tell you the truth, I really haven't lost my mind. We are in our right mind, verse 13. And why? Why are we in our right mind to even bear whatever suffering may come? It's so that we may bring other people to Christ. It's for your sake. It's for your sake that we do this. I'll endure any suffering that the elect might be saved. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10 speaks that way. What really drove Paul was the love of Christ. Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. How could it be otherwise? How could Paul not 
Love others if Jesus so loved him. We love for he first loved us. That's how we should win people to the Lord. We must love men to Jesus, Charles Spurgeon said. The love of Jesus on the cross, that's our message. The message of the cross, that's our preaching. The gospel-centered message of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is love, that a man lay his life down for his friends. God showed his love in this, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus showed his love in this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God showed his love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loves us and gave his son as the reconciliation or propitiation is the big word for our sins. And we should not merely know that love in our minds, in our heads. It's not mere head knowledge. We should feel it to the depth of our being. Feel it in our heart. And then if the love fills our heart, speak from that heart. You and I cannot understand love until we understand the holiness of God and his hatred for sin and his holy law and we have broken that, that law and we have sinned against God. We've rebelled and we deserve hell, judgment. And Jesus took all of that on himself when he died on the cross. And then we'll understand love. Only then can we understand the love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. So let us understand that love. And then we will love Jesus Christ. And then we will speak from a heart filled with love. And then we will love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And then we will love much for we have been forgiven much. And then we will do what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let all that you do be done in love. I know I fall short. I fall far short. All of us do. But let us do what we can. Let us do all we can to understand the message of the cross, the experience of the cross of Jesus Christ. For the cross is the place where everything comes together, verse 15. 14b really, because we have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live to themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised jesus died for all it says he died in our place he died as our substitute verse 14b one has died for all our substitute isaiah 53 verse 46 we died with christ says verse 14 at the end therefore all have died i have died with christ and we experience the reality of that when we when we are converted we take up our cross we follow jesus we crucify the old nature and we confess that in baptism says romans 6 verse 3 i have died with christ i've been buried with christ and no now we therefore no longer live for ourselves verse 15 but we live for him who for our sake died and was raised again it's no longer I that live. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians 
So it's as if we say to ourselves, adieu self, goodbye self, I will die and I desire to die to self. I will no longer live for my appetite and my passions and my pleasures and my interests and my desires and my senses and my preferences and my money and my time and my friends and my entertainment and my relaxation and my friendships and my relationships and my thoughts. No, I no longer want this to be the center of attention. I no longer desire that. I no longer chase that. My, my, me, I, self. Goodbye, self. I wish to live for the Lord. I wish to please God in everything I do. Verse 15 at the end. Live for Him. Verse 9. Whether we are at home, meaning in our bodies, or away, out of the body, we make it our aim to please Him. All meaning at home in heaven or away from home, not in heaven yet. Our aim is to please God. Jesus died and was raised for you. Verse 15. For their sake He died and was raised for you. What is the only fitting response from you on my side? If he died for you and was raised for you, the only fitting response is to live for him, as verse 15 says. Number two, your nature. So we speak of the practical implications of Easter. We saw what the impact on our motives is, and now what's the impact on our nature? Verse 16 and 17. So a, a lion's nature is to kill. A sinner's nature is to sin. But Jesus has now come and he's changed the Christian's nature. He's changed us from the inside out so that we do not regard him anymore according to the flesh, according to the outward appearance, verse 16 says. So we no longer judge him according to the outward appearance and say, well, Jesus is not very attractive. He wasn't a very attractive human being. He was kind of off-putting, according to Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3. And so because he doesn't look outwardly attractive and he only rides on a donkey and not a white horse when he comes into Jerusalem, well, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. He's just a carpenter's son. We know he's... His father, so they thought. We know his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, and his brothers and sisters are here with us. He's not very impressive, is he? His own brothers didn't believe in him. And so the crowds always thought, is this the one? He can't be the one. Can he be? No, he can't. He's just a man. Well, Paul says now our natures have been changed. We knew people. We've got spiritual eyes. Our eyes have been opened. We're alive. We can see past just merely a, a human being that looks like everyone else. We see past this with new eyes. We see that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's Lord. Verse 16. We no longer regard him thus. And because we have a new nature... We see this. You see, the reason why people don't see this is because they're not in, they don't have a new nature. They're not born again. That's why they miss it. 
miss this. That's why they say stupid things like, Jesus is an imposter. Jesus is just, he's nothing more than a wise teacher and just a normal prophet, an everyday ordinary prophet. Or stupid things like, Jesus is the first creature. No, no, we see deeper than that. God has opened our eyes. He's given us a new nature, verse 16. And then we also see other people according to this new nature. And not because they seem impressive outwardly, verse 16, the first part. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't see merely the externals. And the, the point is, the point that Paul's making is that these false teachers, the reason why they looked at Paul and just uh, judged him according to outward appearance, oh, he's a poor man, he's, been, he's suffered a lot. And that's all they saw. They didn't see that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we, we, to apply this, we don't fall for preachers because of their elegant and their eloquent style. And they've got a nice car and expensive clothes and a big house, a mansion. And they've gone extravagant holidays and they've got many followers and, and they've written many books or they preach on TV. No, we don't fall for that. What we ask ourselves is, how does that preacher's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ look like? What does that look like? Is Jesus central in his life? Is Jesus everything or is he the center of attention? And because of our new nature, we also, we've left our old way of living. We, we live a new life, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So sin is not normal to the Christian. Obedience is normal. So we don't say things like, oh, it's just normal that I sin. You know, everyone makes mistakes. I'm just human. Everyone does it. No, that is abnormal. That is abnormal to the Christian. We have a new nature. And the new nature, we love Jesus Christ and we obey Jesus Christ. Yet, we're not sinless. <coughs> we're not sinless yet. But the new nature is obedience to Jesus. How do you become a new creation? Well, the Holy Spirit blows the life of Jesus Christ, and that life is called eternal life. He blows the life of Jesus Christ into our souls, into our beings, and he makes us one with Christ. We are born of water in the Spirit, John tells us, meaning not literal water, but the washing of our souls, the cleansing of our hearts. And the Father and the Son that dwell in us, says John 14. And Jesus, his life is in us. We're in him and he's in us. We abide in Christ and his words are in us. And we know him and that is eternal life, to know him and the Father by the Spirit who, who lives in us. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the living and abiding word of God is in me and the nature of God is in me, Second Peter 1 verse for the divine nature, not meaning that I become God or a God, but meaning that God's life is in the soul of man. God's seed is in us, 1 John 3 verse 9. So, so you're a completely new person with a new nature and new desires and new hope, verse 17. You're a new creation, it says. And that's really the, the beginning of the new creation. And the new creation will be complete when Jesus returns and he gives us a new body, a glorified body, and he creates a new heavens, a new earth with new trees and new mountains and new rivers and so on. Second Peter 3, verse 10 and 12 to 13 in Revelation 21. 
So, so really what happens is regeneration, which is another name for this new creation, the new birth, that is, that is the guarantee of the complete new creation of heaven and earth and everything. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Number three, if we speak of the practical implications of Easter, it's not only your motives and your nature that is influenced and changed, but you're standing with God. You're standing with God or before God, verse 18 to 21. So what you, what you appear like to other people won't count. How other people see you won't count on the judgment day. How much money you have won't count. I saw a photo this week of people in Italy just throwing bank notes, money, lots of money, paper money, just throwing it in the streets, saying it means nothing, it cannot save our lives, it cannot give us health. Reminds me of Proverbs 11 verse 4 that says riches do not profit on the day of wrath. Or Ezekiel 7 verse 19 that says that people will throw their gold and silver in the streets when God's judgment comes because it won't help them. So, so it doesn't matter what people think of you, how God sees you. That's all that matters on the judgment day and even now. How God sees you. That's what matters. And let me ask you then, how does he see you? I'm, I'm not talking about you, plural. I'm talking about you, singular. You personally. You personally listening to the sermon. How does God see you? Are you a new creation, as verse 17 says? Well, if you answer yes to that, it's because God has made you a new creation. Verse 18, all this is from God. Your salvation and my salvation, everything, all of your salvation is from God. It's not from God plus you. It's not what we call in theology synergism, meaning you and God work together in your salvation. No, it's, mon it's monogism. God alone. God alone. It's all from God. Verse 18. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. We know it's the work of God so that no one may boast. We know that. God has saved you through reconciling you to himself through Jesus Christ, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Through the blood of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, Colossians 1 verse 20. So it was his initiative. He started it. We were wrong in this relationship, but he took the initiative to make it right. And now he sends Paul, and he sends missionaries, and he sends pastors, and he sends evangelists, and he sends Christians with this message of reconciliation to the world so that he, they can be reconciled to God. Verse 18, the last part. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that should be the focus of our ministry, the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the preaching of the cross, not social work, not social actions, not being a CEO of a, of a business, because that's how some pastors act nowadays, like they're the CEO of the church, not programs by which we try to grow the church and do kinds of things to draw people, not, not entertaining young people, not doing stuff to get money for the church and building our funds, not having planning meetings, not having music concerts or anything else, 
the message of the cross, any ministry, he says in verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation, any ministry where the message of the cross of Jesus for sinners is not central, is non-biblical ministry. So what is the message? The message is in verse 19, God has reconciled the world, meaning all nations. He has reconciled the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus bore our punishment on the cross, the punishment for our sins, so that God now says he does not reckon our sin to our account. Verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them. He nailed the record of death that stood against us to the cross, Colossians 2 verse 14. And this, this forgiveness is for everyone who believes. We know that from John 3, 16. That's what he says in verse 19, the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this good news comes through preaching. Verse 19. He says, end of the verse, entrusting to us the message or the word of reconciliation. How shall they call on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Verse 17 of Romans 10 says, Faith comes through hearing, and what we hear is the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, Paul says, The preaching of the cross, the message of the cross. We preach Christ and Him crucified. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the message is not about us. It's not our message. The message, verse 19, says it was entrusted to us. It's God's message. We don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. This is God's message. We are only the administrators. We are only the ones entrusted with the message. We are the ambassadors. So we don't preach our own ideas. We don't preach what we like. We preach what God has entrusted to us, His Word. The whole counsel of God, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So therefore we do not throw out preaching, we do not replace preaching with drama and music and ecstatic experiences and interviews and debates and sermonettes and short meditations. John MacArthur said to a group of students standing up, pushing his hands against the table, saying, preaching is everything. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors. We represent Jesus Christ. And God implores people and exhorts people through us. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We speak as though we speak the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4.11 So that's why it's so important for preachers to be very diligent in their sermon preparation. To make sure we're preaching God's word and God's word only. Only the preaching of the scriptures. Nothing else. Not our ideas. Otherwise we say, thus says the Lord, and the Lord has not spoken. We speak things from our own thumbs, sucking it from our thumbs. We're not speaking the word of God then. What we should preach is, verse 20, God making his appeal through us. 
Now, apart from what we say, yes, what we say is important. What we say is important. But it's also how we say it that's important. Verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ. We beg with you. Beg you. We plead with you. So this earnestness, this seriousness when we preach, it shows to the listeners this is not, this is not just a suggestion. This is not an option. This is serious. Like George Whitfield and Richard Baxter. George Whitfield said in a sermon, You play me for weeping, but how can I help weeping? When you will not weep for yourselves, although your own immortal souls are on the verge of destruction. And for all you know, you are hearing your last sermon, and you may never more have the opportunity to have Christ offered to you. Richard Baxter said, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And like Richard Baxter and Whitfield and Paul and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you, I implore you, I plead with you, lay down your weapons of sin, lay down your weapons of rebellion. Be reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And for you, backslider, no longer backslide. Turn back to the Lord Jesus, call upon him, turn to God, and he will turn to you. You don't know where your backsliding will end. You don't know. Are you the Matthew 7, 21 to 23 kind of person? Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name or prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. So repent this very day, repent this very hour, repent this very moment, turn back to the Lord Jesus and be reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus. Verse 20 is written to Christians. When Paul says to Christians, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And for you, Christian, who hasn't backslidden, be careful that you do not backslide. Do not underestimate Satan. Do not underestimate sin. Don't underestimate the world. Don't become easy with the world and fiddle with the world and make friends with the world. Don't play. Don't play games. Don't coast. Don't give in to sin even a little. Don't become weak in your reading and meditation on the Word of God and in prayer. And in involvement in the body of Christ, the church. Don't leave your first love for Jesus. Don't start putting other things above Christ. Be watchful. Be wary. Be awake. Fight. Fight. Persevere. I plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God daily. Remember that Jesus is without sin. Without sin, he was in his nature. He was without sin in his life, in his actions, in his thoughts, in his desires, in his emotions, in his words. Verse 21, God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin. This verse tells us, 1 Peter 2, 22, 1 John 3, verse 5, Hebrews 4, 15, and a number of other verses. And yet he bore our sin in his body 
on the tree. He bore our sin on the cross. And therefore the Father regarded him who knew no sin as sin itself. Jesus was cursed on the cross. Galatians 3.13 So in Christ, by faith in Christ, what happens now is the Father regards us as righteous as his own Son. Verse 21 So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is our righteousness. So what are the implications of this? The implications are if Jesus has taken all your sin on the cross, he was regarded as sin, if he has given you all his righteousness and you are now the righteousness of God, then all your sin is forgiven. There's no more you have to pay. Not by whipping yourself or by going to so-called purgatory as the Catholics believe or by doing some other thing to suffer for your sin. No one can bring a charge against you. So your conscience can't accuse you of sin that has been forgiven in the past. And Satan can't accuse you and the world can't accuse you. And whatever the sin there still is in your life, you can now come and confess it and find forgiveness. Who shall bring against a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. More than that, it is Jesus who died, who was also buried, who was also raised, who is also interceding for us. Another implication is there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you suffer, when you go through difficult times, and on Judgment Day itself, you will not be condemned. And your suffering now is not a condemnation. If that were, then God has punished Jesus on the cross for your sins, and now he punishes you for the same sin. And that's called double jeopardy. That means that that would imply that God has turned around his own decision in court. If he declared you righteous, he declared you justified. And now he turns it around and said no more. That can never be true. You have a perfect record before God for the day of judgment. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Isaiah 61 verse 10 also says that. And then a, a second last implication is there is hope for you on your deathbed. There is hope for you when you lie on your deathbed because your sins are forgiven. You're covered in the robe of Christ's right, righteousness. If that weren't so, then you would have no hope on your deathbed. If you trusted in yourself, what hope would you have? And you would be full of doubts and you would be afraid, but now you no longer need to be afraid and full of doubts and hopeless. And then above all, above all, the implication of this justification, of this righteousness covering you and your sins removed by the death of Jesus, is you now praise God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And then finally, Galatians 6 verse 14, will be your song of praise. But far be it from me to boast, except 
in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, praise and glory and honour and thanksgiving be to our God forever and ever. Amen.